So today we are in Hebrews chapter 11. You can open your Bibles there. And, and while you are, are turning there, I want to tell you that when I was a little boy, my father used to sit down uh, with me and my siblings and tell us stories of his childhood. And when he'd tell these stories, he would start all of them by this little phrase. He would say, a long time ago when daddy was a little boy. And we loved those stories, and he told us the same stories again and again and again. And so, fathers, you might want to think about doing that with your kids. I just know that's a remembrance that I had for a long time. I enjoyed it. Well, many of you know a few years ago, he wrote this book called A Long, Long Time Ago, When Grandpa Was a Little Boy, kind of adapting it. And in this book, he basically told the stories that he told to his children, but this time, He was aiming for another generation. This is told particularly for his grandchildren. It says, Stories by Stanley D. Brandon, M.D. for his grandchildren. And uh, one of his aims in writing this book was really to help his grandchildren, my children, and his 20 20 total grandchildren, 23 or 22, (laughs) I forget how many, um, all of his grandchildren, just a perspective on life that they might, might catch it and grab it. He grew up, as uh, many of you know, a poor farmer in central Illinois. Um, at one point when he was living out on the, on the um, farmland there, he lived in a small house with no electricity and no plumbing. Um, and uh, just wants to really pass on uh, just the heritage of where he came from to realize everything we have is, is God's grace. To realize that we have so much. Because even he lived, he was growing up in the time of depression where they didn't have much of anything at all. He went to a one-room schoolhouse where they too didn't have plumbing. And I remember he talked about how he needed to bring corn cobs even to heat the thing. It's kind of one of their jobs to go out to bring wood or whatever would burn just to keep the place warm. And he's writing this to his grandchildren. His grandchildren might live differently. Now, one of the my favorite stories is told on page 26. I want you to sit on my proverbial lap, if you will, listen as a child would. It's entitled, and some of you have read this book, I know maybe this is review to you, but I can, I can read this story. I've heard it many, many times before, and I'll hear it many, many more times, and I'll read it some more. The Christmas Present, 1939. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, when Grandpa was a little boy, I lived with my parents, Vic and Helen Brandon, and my brother, Earl Thomas, who was 20 months older, in a red brick house in Decatur, Illinois, and there was a rented apartment upstairs. This is when he was living in the city. <clears throat> I do not remember the house well, except that the kitchen was to the back, and there was a front room where we gathered, and there was a front porch which was open facing Wood Street. The house was numbered 1936 East Wood Street, which had a bench type of swing. And, uh, of course, the swing was made to be set in to go back and forth, but Tommy and I used to go end-to-end to pretend we were going to New York, like maybe on the train or something, I'm not exactly sure. But he said, I remember a special Christmas a long time ago. We had a Christmas tree decked out with a set of lights and other ornaments. There were presents under the tree, but not so many at that. It was our custom not to open presents until Sunday morning. I know it was hard to wait, but we always did. And I remember getting up on that Christmas morning on what I would guess was 1939, going to the front room and there under the tree was a train set with tracks circling the Christmas tree. 
It looked everything like a modern train with a diesel engine and four cars to pull. It was a wind-up model. Fortunately, we did not get many other presents, so there was lots of time to play with that train set. The tracks were those that really looked like a train tracks, and there were enough sections to make a turn at each end in just a few straight pieces. And I'm sure it was not many, but not only was I greatly surprised, but I was very happy to have the train. I can remember having the train and tracks to play with many years later as we moved to the farm and even as we moved to Clinton. And it was a good thing that it was a wind-up model too as we did not have electricity when we moved to the farm. Whatever happened to it, I do not know. But it is a Christmas present that I remember. And then comes the punchline. Do you have a favorite toy? Or do you have too many to have a favorite? Do you have a favorite toy? Or do you have too many to have a favorite? really points us down to where we need to be here this morning. My guess is that many of you children are in this situation in your life as well. You have many, many, many toys to play with. If you're a boy, you probably have trucks and balls. If you're a girl, you have dolls and dresses. Or if you're like my son, who has an older sister, he has dolls and dresses too to play with. You have big toys like trampolines and play sets. You have little toys like MP3 players and Playstations. You have outdoor toys like bikes and rollerblades. You have indoor toys and games like Monopoly and Life. You have Legos and Polly Pockets and Matchbox cars and Beanie Babies. But with all your toys, you don't have any favorite toy because you have too many toys. And so my father has written this story so that my children might see the privileges in their lives that they might not take all these toys, all the things they have for granted. When he was a little boy, one toy and he cherished it. And we with so many can end up cherishing none. Well, this story really parallels our text this morning. We who live in the days of the New Covenant have a great privilege with those the Old Testament never knew. The Old Testament saints had, think about it, they had a faulty covenant ministered by weak priests who offered up imperfect sacrifices. Whereas we, on the other hand, we have a better covenant with a perfect priest who has offered up the ultimate sacrifice. The Old Testament saints only looked forward in hope. Well, we have the promise fulfilled in Jesus. And we experience all the treasures in Christ, all the riches of the treasure in Jesus. Yet there, sadly, many times we take everything that we have in Jesus for granted. We lose sight of the wonders and privileges that are ours by faith in Jesus. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 27, verse 7. that says, The one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry... Every bitter thing is sweet. In other words, if you're full and satisfied, you can get to a point where even the sweet things are not attractive to you anymore. But if you're hungry and starving, even those things which are bitter then become sweets to you as well. And sadly, this can happen to our spiritual lives. The incredible spiritual blessings we have in Christ. I mean, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have it all. We have all the toys, if you will. We have all the blessings in Jesus. And that can become so normal that we forget how privileged we are to have so much. 
And my aim this morning is to stir your hearts afresh at the wonders of what we have in Jesus. In fact, that is the message of our text this morning. Our privileges that we have are far greater than the privileges that any of the Old Testament saints knew. They lived in difficult days, like the days of the Depression, when all you could do was was work each hard and look towards the promise that would come someday, but you never knew when that promise would come. Which we today live in the days of plenty. I mean, despite the recession, we live today with all the modern conveniences. We have electricity, we have plumbing. I think all of you do. We have communication tools which are, which are unbelievable in this information age. But spiritually, we live in a day of plenty as well. After the cross, we live in a day when the promises have been fulfilled. We don't need to look high and long and far off for God's provision for our lives. Rather, we merely need to look to Jesus who fulfilled all of the Old Testament. And we ought to live in light of that privilege. And that's the key. We ought to live in light of that privilege. That's why my dad wrote his book to his grandchildren to understand the great privileges of living in our day. It's the burden of my message this morning. Well, Hebrews 11. We've been in here several months. I just want to recap and read the entire chapter for us this morning because verses 39 and 40 really are the point of the chapter and we catch the point of the chapter if we read everything. So, bear with me. So read Hebrews chapter 11. And I trust that as we read over these things, maybe some messages will come to mind as we've gone slowly through each of these Old Testament examples of faith. begins in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before he was taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he would receive the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Okay, here comes the punchline. After all that, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's read that punchline again. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Astonishing words, right? We're building up. We're building up. We're building up. Example after example after example. Those who live by faith. Long list of the heroes of the faith, like, like Abraham and Moses and David. An overflowing list of all the great DJ Dunn even. Right? Shutting the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, even suffering martyrdom, a painful martyrdom like being sawn in two. And he says, verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. Now, it's not that God wasn't pleased with them. On the contrary, look at verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, God was very pleased with them. When God looked down upon them, He saw their faith. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. With faith, it is possible to please God. And they pleased God. They gained God's approval. But they didn't receive what was promised. So you say, why? Well, verse 40 answers the why question. Because God had provided something better for us. And right here is really the the hinge of the chapter that that takes the, the faith of everyone else and now brings it to us. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. An entire chapter describing faith the Old Testament who lived lives of faith, obtained great blessing, and then he turns to us and says God has provided something better for us. Again, we see this word better occurs, I think it's 13 times in the epistle, which is all about how Jesus is better, right? He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than any of the high priests. He brought a better covenant with a better sacrifice. And here in verse 40, what do we see in this better? Well, I'm calling it a better privilege. It's the title of my sermon this morning, A Better Privilege. That is, the position that we sit in as New Covenant believers is of greater privilege than that of what they sat under in the Old Testament. And a better privilege calls us to a better life. We'll get that towards the end of my message. Well, there's a run-through of the verses. Let's look at them more carefully. Look at verse 39. My first point this morning, the promise to them. Now, by them I mean the Old Testament saints. As opposed to verse 40, us is the New Testament saints, particularly the, the, the Jewish people of the day when it was written, but that can extend easily to us. And when I talk about the promise, the promise to them, I'm talking about that which the Old Testament saints never received. All these, having gained approval by their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, if you know your Old Testaments, you know that the Old Testament saints received lots of promises. I mean, God promised to give Israel a land, and He gave Israel a land under the guidance of Joshua. Joshua 21, 43-44. Various military leaders were promised victory. We saw some a couple of weeks ago. Gideon and Barak and David. You will be victorious. And they obtained that promise. They were victorious. Uh, Hezekiah received a promise of life. Fifteen more years will be added to you. And Hezekiah lived fifteen more years. This is just a, a few scattering samples of all the promises the Old Testament saints had. They had a lot. In fact, God has always been in the business of giving promises and fulfilling them. In fact, it even says here in verse 33, if you look at there, who these people by faith, they conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness. What did they do? They obtained promises. So the question is, how, how can the author say in verse 39 that they did not receive what was promised? Well, a clue comes in the New American Standard, if you have one. It says in the footnote there, translated can be, they did not receive the promise. Or if the King James translates it, And these all, having obtained a good report through their faith, received not the promise. The promise. It's singular in this case. And I believe it's talking about the promise of the Messiah coming. I mean, this is the one promise given to all Old Testament saints, which they all knew about, which they all eagerly awaited, which they all never obtained. Since the day that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, that day when God placed a curse upon the serpent, And He cursed the woman. He cursed the ground. Remember the promise that He gave in Genesis 3.15? Raising up the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent will crush Him. The serpent will crush Him. Will will bruise Him on the heel. But this seed, the seed of the woman, will bruise Him on the head. Obviously talking about the Messiah. 
Talking about the one who's going to ultimately crush. So even Adam and Eve knew of the promise. In fact, that's why I think even Eve and Adam named, named their firstborn son Cain from the Hebrew cannot get. I've got a man-child. Maybe I've got this one who's going to crush Satan. Now, it didn't turn out, but I think that promise was on their mind. Since the days of Moses, they were always looking for another prophet like him to arise who will lead them to true deliverance. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Since the days of David, they always looked for the one to, to arise, to sit on the throne of David forever. Since the days of Isaiah, they were looking for the one to be born of a virgin who would be called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Priests, the one whose government would, would have no end. They all looked for this promise. And yet, according to verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. And again, it wasn't deficiency in them. On the contrary, it says here that they all gained approval through their faith. All these having gained approval through their faith. In fact, that's the overall testimony in this chapter, right? It's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. All these people did wondrous things by their faith and met God's approval. And particularly here in chapter 11, they all received God's approval. There's not a name mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11 that didn't receive God's approval. Abel received God's approval. Enoch received God's approval. Noah received God's approval. And so did Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. All right down the line. They all gained approval through. In fact, you can even see that in verse 2. As he starts the chapter, he speaks about how these men gained approval, right? The faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the men of old gained approval. So you see, even that they, they pass the God-pleasing test. They were pleasing to God in their faith and God te- gave testimony that they were His children. Which, by the way, ought to come as great encouragement to us. God doesn't forget. God remembers those of faith. When things of life are rough and difficult, you've not left the mind of God. God knows and He remembers. And regarding the saints of the Old Testament, God gave testimony to all those who live by faith in God. This, this word here in verse 39 about having gained approval, it's literally that, that God witnessed about them. They witnessed for God in this life and God witnessed to them that they received approval. I mean, that's how it works, right? We confess the Lord Jesus Christ before men. God will confess us before everyone. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But just because they were approved of God doesn't mean that they gained everything. It doesn't mean they received everything. I mean, look at verse 13. This kind of gives us an insight, talking particularly about Abraham and Sarah and maybe sledding, uh, sliding on into some of the patriarchs. It says, And all these died in faith. Okay, all these, Abraham, Sarah particularly, they died in faith because that's what's talked about just recently, without receiving the promises. Here they are, they, they died having pleased God, having gained His approval, but not receiving the promise, just like verse 39. And in verse 13, we see instead what, 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 how they died or what, what their perspective was. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. That is, that they were waiting a future fulfillment of these promises which they were looking for. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, particularly they were looking for the land to come. And they died owning just Abraham, a funeral plot for Sarah. 
they didn't receive all the fullness of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Instead, they just received it. But instead, they, they looked forward to the day when, when all those things would take place. I mean, and, and they, they did in terms of looking for the land and the nation to rise up and then the ultimate blessing. And they got the land and um, the, 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 the country. There were a great, mighty number of people. But then even the blessing to the great ends of the earth, that one only came in Jesus. They, they, but but there's a perspective. They're looking forward, anticipating that God who made this promise would fulfill it at some time. I think the best way to describe this might be Maybe to hit all of us, particularly the kids. It's a little bit like they were a child who was eagerly anticipating Christmas. Right? Kids, you know what anticipating Christmas is like, don't you? Yeah, you know that, KB, right? You like that day, right? I remember I had a hard time. December 24th, I got my worst sleep ever as a little 10-year-old, 9-year-old, whatever you are, Caleb. And I had a hard time. But imagine this. Imagine you lived in Narnia, kids. And what's, what's so terrible about Narnia before Aslan came? Winter all the time and never Christmas. Imagine Christmas never coming. That's what these Old Testament saints were like. They hoped for and dreamed for this Christmas, but it never came. They hoped and dreamed for this promise, but the promise never came. Instead, they, they passed away. But here's the thing. I want you to notice this is by design. It was no accident. Look at verse 40. It says, because. That's a, it's a causal word. This is why they didn't receive the promise. Because God had provided something better for us. Think about it. They didn't receive the promises because God, in His foreknowledge, and His plan, had a better plan for us who live after the cross. Acts 17, verse 26 says that God determines the times and boundaries where everyone lives. And it's no accident that they lived then and that we live now. And it's no accident that they didn't receive the promises and that we did by God's design. Leads my second point. Not only have we seen the promise to them, which was unfulfilled, but secondly, we see the provision for us, which is way better. You say, what has God provided for us? Well, Christmas is what God has provided for us, if you will. Kind of using that same metaphor. Aslan's come on the scene. The thaw's breaking. How appropriate for today. Right? And the Christmas came. Jesus came. Brought in a better covenant based upon better promises. And that which the Old Testament saints could only dream about, we have seen fulfilled in Jesus. I love the way that Michael Card wrote it in this song called The Promise. Talking about the Incarnation. He says, the Lord God said when time was full that He would shine His light in the darkness. He said a virgin would conceive and give birth to the promise. For a thousand years the dreamers dreamt and hoped to see His love. The promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. The promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. They were anticipating this thing and they, and they had some kind of thought about it, but in their wildest dreams, it wasn't wild enough. God to come and to redeem and to provide a people for Himself, take everything Himself. Now, we, think about us. We today, we no longer have to hope of something coming in the future. We, we're able to live in the assurance that someone came and that rescued us. He paid for our sins. He established peace for us. He reconciled us to God. God has given us something better than they ever hoped for. 
That's what verse 40 says, right? Because God has provided something better for us. Now, now notice, the, again, the reason or the purpose of why God has done this. So that, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Alright? This, this is difficult. I've been wrestling with this all week. I still don't have it totally, okay? But we'll, we'll come with what I have here. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, that's not what you'd expect the author to say. You'd expect, you'd expect someone to say this, so that apart from Christ, they would not be made perfect. In other words, they didn't receive what was promised because God had provided something better. He provided Jesus through whom they would be perfect. And in fact, even right here, you can think about Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that speaks about how in former times God passed over the sins previously committed but now, in Christ, He has shown Himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, those beforehand, yes, they got into the kingdom, and yes, but, but they were waiting. Because for God to pass over and forgive anybody's sin in the Old Testament is an affront to the justice of God. Because He can't just pass over sin. Sin's got to be punished. So how did He deal with the sin of Abraham when He lied? And how did He deal with the sin of David when He committed adultery and when He murdered how do you deal with the sins of these people? You know what? He just said, just wait. I'll pay for them later. And it was when Jesus came that He ultimately paid for them. He paid for the sins upon the cross to be committed and those that were committed. Everything paid for on the cross. That's a little bit what's being talked about here. God had provided something better for us. That's what we would expect. I mean, Romans 3, we kind of just, just would maybe put in here and say that's, that's what was happening. And it's true and that's the thrust of what he's saying. There's not anything that's wrong. But yes, the Old Testament saints had to wait for the Messiah to come. But yes, they needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to forgive the sins rather than animal sacrifices. But that's not exactly what we read here in verse 40. Look what we read in verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Notice the pronoun the all-important pronoun, us. Us. appears twice in verse 40. Intentionally to direct ourselves to the privilege that we have over and against what they had. Yes, Abraham was favored of God. Yes, Moses was favored of God. Yes, David was favored of God. But God placed His favor upon us in a greater way than He did upon Abraham and Moses and David. Apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect. I think some of what it is, this is focusing not upon what, but it's upon the when. God was waiting for the church to be completed in some regard before He would make them perfect. In other words, a little bit like you got Christmas dinner. right? You're all coming, your family's gathering, and for us, that five of my siblings, let's see, a brother and three sisters and all the grandkids, and you know, sometimes for holidays we gather at my folks' place, and what happens? We, we wait for the last person to come, right? And that kind of gives honor. Well, we're the last people who've come. And that's why God has provided something better for us. Because we're, I think that's what verse 40 is, is talking about. But this thought might blow you away is that Abraham was favored of God, but we've been favored more in one regard. You remember what Jesus said to the Old Testament saints? He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. You put John the Baptist against any of these Old Testament, no one greater. It says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is better than John the Baptist. 
And I think he's talking about the privilege of entering the kingdom like we do of believing in Jesus who came rather than believing in a Messiah to come. And I think God likewise has bestowed His favor upon us. Because Abraham, Moses, David, John the Baptist would never know perfection apart from us. Okay, so think about this. Never consider yourself a second-class citizen. Now, to us, I think we, we miss this a little bit, but think about the original hearers. They were Jews coming out of their Judaism, coming into the church, hearing about this Jesus, liking it. And, and what's happening is these Jewish people are trying to pull them away. Say, no, come back to our Judaism. Come back to the temple. Come back to the sacrifices. Come back to the rituals. Come back to the festival. Come back. And they're like, no, we're in the church now. Say, but, but this is where God's people are. This is Abraham and this is Moses. And this is David. Come back here. You're missing your heritage. You, don't, don't go with the, those scum Christians over there. You come with us. And I think that they could easily say, no thank you. We've got it better. The whole thrust of chapter 11. Yes, these people are great, but we've got it better than any of them had it. And, here's my application for us, okay? This ought to make a big difference in the way we live. In fact, this is, this is a big application. I mean, yes, there is application like we've had all the way through. Is that This is the faith of those people, and we should be like them, believing, trusting. So the faith they had, we should have a faith similar in some regard. However, verse 40 even indicates we've got a bigger privilege, therefore we ought to live better. Tim has been given much, much will be required. And we've been given more than these, we're required to live higher, better. This isn't just theology. This is, this is heading towards application. It's the way that we live. So, let me give you an illustration maybe to try to help you with this. Okay? Imagine you're called, whatever, you're employed as a gardener of a, of a large estate okay, by this man who's an eccentric, rich man and he employs you to be a gardener. Now, you're in charge of all the outdoor plants. That means you need to mow the grass and prune the trees and trim the bushes and rake the lawn and plant the flower beds and cultivate and weed the garden and just do all the work that's involved to make this, his estate pristine and looking nice. However, this, this owner is, is pretty eccentric and so he's got a few restrictions for you. He says this, well, you can only do your work at night because I don't want to see anybody out there during the day to mess up the beauty of my estate, Okay. And then the owner of the state um, says, I don't want any artificial water or fertilizer used on my yard. And I think somebody's a naturalist, right? He's, so he, you got to do it like totally, you got to garden just with what you have, all right? And then he says, I don't want you reading any books about gardening. Maybe those a hundred years ago, maybe some old books. Okay, but you can't read anything new because he's kind of, this is a strange man. I'm, not sure, I'm just trying to paint this guy in your mind, the guy you're working for, so you're trying to do all, all this. And so how well do you think you do? <laughs> you're bad. Like, what would you do? What would be bad, Caleb? What? Everything would be shriveled, huh? Plants might die. Okay, maybe. Uh, I'm thinking my, my biggest deal is mowing. You ever mowed kind of at dusk? 
you know, and you're trying to go and try and, and you miss these big strips of, of grass right in the middle. You, you probably missed that. If you're trying to prune a tree and you can't step back. I mean, all you have is the lights of the estate, you know, which are, you know, lighting up the, the driveway up to this man's house. Maybe some overflow from the house. But you really, you don't have a lot. You can't really see the tree. And the bushes you try to trim, oh, there's lots of, uh, you know, stray branches over. and It's not going to look really nice. Um, weeding the garden, boy, when you're down, it's, it's going to be very hard to distinguish between a weed and a plant. It's going to be really difficult. But you try your best. Okay, here's my point. The Old Testament saints were a little bit like that gardener. <coughs> Hebrews 10, verse 1 says that the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. That is, there's something to guide them, but they couldn't see clearly. Rather, they saw shadows. They're living in shadows in the light of the sun. That's why I tried to typify you. You, you can only garden at night when things aren't quite so clear. And it's, it's, it's hard to live in the shadows. It's hard to see clearly. But, but not only that, also, their covenant they had was faulty. These Old Testament saints. In fact, that's what Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 says. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second but finding fault with the first one, that's when he established the new covenant because the first covenant was faulty. So they're working on a faulty covenant. had weak priests. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. That the priest can deal gently with the ignorant misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. On top of that, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that all the sacrifices they ever had could never take away sins. All they could do is point to the one who could take away sins. That's Jesus, the Savior, who would come someday. But they didn't know. They didn't fully understand. In fact, Peter even speaks about how they didn't understand. He, he said, as to the salvation which we have, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries. They studied hard, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, in other words, even these prophets who wrote down the revelation, they wrote better than they knew and they studied these texts. They tried to understand when it was the Messiah to come and they couldn't understand the sufferings of Christ the glories to follow. Whereas we do understand. We understand the sufferings of Christ the glories to follow. We understand the sufferings of Calvary and the exaltation of God which followed. We understand how God highly exalted Jesus as a result of His death. Philippians 2, we can read that. We live in full knowledge of these things. Those prophets didn't understand and studied. It came, here's, here's what came to their mind. It says in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them. Okay, They needed help with this. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves in these things, but you. Same kind of thought. God told them, okay, you've written these things down, you can study it all, you're not going to get it. You're serving them, a later generation, which is us. It revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. We've been the recipients of the promises. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the Messiah come. And we're like the gardener who works in the day. Now, how much better do you think the gardener who works in the day will be than the gardener who works at night? And the gardener who can use water and can use fertilizer. Right? Got a better covenant. Can use all those things. And able to read and study all about gardening. He's got access to the New Testament. Can read that. 
Listen, the more we know, the more we can apply, the prettier will be our, our garden. And so also our lives of faith. We, we who live in the days of greater revelation ought to have lives that surpass that of the Old Testament saints. Because we know how our sins are forgiven. Um, picture Abraham and David in heaven. Or Moses and uh, Elijah who who obviously were still people because they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration talking. They're up in heaven trying to think, okay, why are we here? Because they knew that the sacrifices maybe weren't... They they didn't know everything. And it was only then the unfolding plan of Jesus. And I'm not sure when they revealed, when they knew that, but there was some doubt even in heaven. But then when Christ came, all of heaven was opened up and God's redemption plan was all known to everybody and how different it is for them to not really know exactly how their sins are forgiven. Well, we know for sure that our sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus upon the cross. Our sins are made right. We know of the atonement. We can read the atonement. The New Testament is covered with information about the atonement. We know about redemption and propitiation. How, how God's wrath was turned away at the cross of Christ. And we know how we are reconciled to God now as His brothers. We are fellow heirs with Jesus. We know of the resurrection and the power of that and how we need to be born again and how our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in all these things we know. So how are we to live? We ought to live way better than the Old Testament saints have because we have this privilege that none of the Old Testament saints had. They could look at the shadows, but we could look at Jesus. In fact, that's where chapter 12 is, is heading, Right? Chapter 12, verse 1. We'll look at this in weeks to come. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, surrounding us, let us also, like them, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We don't have to fix our hope on some vague promise of something in the future. We fix our hope upon the Lord who came to earth, suffered upon the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. With a better privilege, God calls us to live better. He calls us to have a greater faith than Abraham. calls us to have a greater faith than Moses. calls us to have a greater faith than David. Because the blessings are, faith, are, are, are greater, the object of our faith then is clearer. Now, having said that, it's not to say that everything is crystal clear. Because we have some promises that still haven't come past to us, right? The promises of the return of Christ, particularly. And so, the, 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 the promise of the total return of His kingdom, when He totally establishes His rule and His reign. You can read about that at the end of Revelation. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, the Almighty reigneth. Right? When that happens. But that's something in the future that we don't see now. We see a lot of bad stuff. We see Satan roaring, crawling around like a roaring lion. We see sin. We just see stress. We just see hardship. Right? We don't see everything. But we've at least seen the one mountain peak come as we anticipate the next one of his coming. And I think that's in some ways why those in heaven who've seen everything in the unfolding of plan and God is there with us, the redeemed bodies, the redeemed city, the redeemed nation, 
That's why we can live even better than we're living today. We have redemption bodies and we fully understand and see everything. But I think likewise, we, between the first and second comings of Christ, ought to live better than those who lived before that and could only look to God in some hope. Well, that's my, my best shot here at verses 39 and 40, that we have a, a greater...